Uh, scripture reading will be in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and the first few verses of chapter 4. 2 Timothy 3 beginning in verse 14. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to miss. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again just thank you for all that you have revealed of yourself to us through your word. And I pray that as again we look at your word and think on these things that you have done on our behalf, God, that our, our hearts would just be encouraged and strengthened to, to live, God, in, in submission to you and to what you have said. And that we would have hungry hearts, God, for you and your word. And that we would respond, Lord, in loving dependence and obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe may be seated. Well, we've been looking over the last few um, weeks at the topic, the subject of bibliology. And we've looked at revelation and inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility. Last Sunday, we were looking at the subject of accommodation, and my wife pointed out to me that I was not very clear at the beginning, and that because all these other messages have been positive things, revelation, inspiration, inerrancy, she was assuming that accommodation was something positive too. And it is not. That is something that that God, the the point of accommodation is a theory that Jesus would, would just accommodate himself to the false teaching of the day. And instead of, instead of um, correcting the false teaching, he would just adjust what he was teaching to fit it. And so he would teach things that he knew were not true, like Moses walking through the Red Sea on dry land or Adam and Eve or whatever, that he just would go along with the fables and, and beliefs of the day. And we saw that that is absolutely contrary to the spirit and character of Jesus, who is the truth. Now... I want to talk this Sunday, and I, and I hate it that these messages are not just really centered on God's Word, because that's where my heart is, and they're a little bit more topical and, and academic, but I, I do hope with each of these to be applying them, and that our hearts would just be encouraged with the truths um, that we're talking about. And so today, it's about how we came to have these 66 books of the Bible. Why is it not fewer or more. And we call the 66 books of the Bible the canon of Scripture. And it, I just think from the outset, we, we, we um, ought to just be encouraged to know that God is not continuing to write Scripture today. So there is no new New Testament that's going to be given, as our Mormon friends would call the Book of Mormon, the new New Testament. 
There is not um, anything new that God's going to say. He has everything he needs to say, wants to say, he has said in his word. And this provides the foundation for our faith. The scripture says that our faith is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. This provides the boundaries for our life where the Lord says not to exceed these things. This provides the light unto our way. The Lord guides us through his word. All of these things are things that we need. We need a sure foundation, a solid rock in our life. We need the boundaries because those boundaries actually, actually give us freedom. That we know this far we can go and no further. And we live within those boundaries. And it also gives us guidance and light as we go through this life. And so God has given us everything necessary. It's called the, sufficient, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. A number of years ago, um, there was a new movement that was spreading across the United States and around the world, um, and it was involved with, the, with signs and wonders. And one of the principal founders and leaders of that particular movement was a man named John Wimber. And he was being quizzed by some theologians once after a conference um, that he gave down in Australia. And the, many of the uh, um, um, medical professionals and, and theologians were there just to look at this conference and to see if these things squared with what they knew to be true. And afterwards, some of these theologians had a private meeting with, with um, John Wimber, and they said, it seems to us that you really do not hold to the sufficiency of Scripture. And he said, well, that's not true. I do hold to the sufficiency of Scripture. Well, his right-hand man at the time used to be a Dallas seminary professor. He was one of my Hebrew professors when I was in seminary. And he was standing there listening to this conversation, and he stopped him and said, John, you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And this was John Wimber's, at the time, right-hand man, the most theologically trained man in that movement at that time. And he said, this is what they mean by the sufficiency of Scripture, that everything that God needs to say to us, he has said to us in his word. We don't need another revelation from God. That the Bible is in itself sufficient for living the Christian life. And then John Wimber said, well, if you explain it that way, no, I don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. When it really comes down to it, many Christians do not act as though they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We can say that we do, but when it comes down to how we live, do we really truly believe that, that God, when he spoke to us in his word, has given us the final word? That anything else that we may think that God is saying will never exceed what he has said in his word. Everything has to be judged on the basis of this. I believe that God still speaks today, but it does not take precedence or authority over what God has already said. Everything that we believe God has said, is saying, must be surrendered to what Scripture has said. Now, the 66 books of the Bible are called the canon of Scripture. When I think of canons, I think of metal round cylinders that shoot round projectiles. You're probably the same. But metaphorically, canon means um, a standard. 
a rule, a measuring device. And when applied to the Bible, it means the Bible is the standard of our faith, the measuring rod for everything that we would encounter in life. The key point with canonicity is simply that what is canonical, what is authoritative, what is inspired, is not determined by men, but it is determined by God. God is the one that reveals. God is the one who is inspired. And so canonicity, the authority, is determined not by church councils, but it is determined by God. There have been church councils all through the centuries. They were not determining what is Scripture. They were simply giving recognition to what was already clearly accepted. And so as God was inspiring the 66 books of the Bible, they were always, with no exception, immediately accepted as inspired. In the case of the Old Testament, it was a pretty simple process because they were not being written at the same time, typically. It was one prophet at a time who was writing. And as soon as those things were written, they were typically given to the temple and kept safe there. And so they were constantly being collected in the temple. So there was one language, and, written, and those books were written, in, for the most part, in one location, Israel, and they were being kept in one central collection place, the temple. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, it's a little different because we have 27 books that are being written in about a 30 to 50-year time frame, and they're being written all over Europe, and there is not a central collection place. But still, nonetheless, every one of the 27 New Testament books, when it was written, was immediately recognized by the people of God as being inspired. No book was just put on a shelf out there saying, we're not so sure about that one. All 66 books, no exception, had immediate recognition by the people of God as being different from everything else that was being written. Now, you'll hear critics all the time say, well, what about the Epistle of Barnabas? What about the Shepherd of Hermes? What about, you know, and they'll just list all these things. I haven't read all those, but I've read some excerpts of some of those things. And I'm telling you, you do not have to be an expert in literature to see the, the qualitative inf- difference, the inferior quality of all these other things. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. One book, um, and it's the Gospel of Thomas, has been the one that critics have probably most said ought to be in the New Testament. And yet when you look at what the Gospel of Thomas says, you're going, have you read your New Testament? It is so far contrary to Scripture. The Gospel of Thomas says if you want to find Jesus, split wood and you will find him there. If you want to find Jesus, turn over rocks and you'll find him there. The Gospel of Thomas is very pantheistic. They believe that God was commingled with his creation. And that's why you could split wood and find Jesus in the wood. The Gospel of Thomas says that the only way that a woman can enter the kingdom of God is to make herself a man. And then she can enter the kingdom of God. And it goes on and on like that. And you go, and and people really think that this book is like the others? You see, you don't have to be an expert even in theology. Any person could read these things 
and see that they are immeasurably different than the 66 books of the Bible. It's not rocket science. And so Christians all through the centuries, just like you and me, lay people, would handle these books, these 66 books of the Bible, and say, this is different. This is the Word of God. No exception to that. And so as church councils were were giving recognition, and, and some critics will say, well, why didn't they do that sooner? Why didn't those church councils get together sooner and start making the list of books? Because it was late in the 4th century, the 300s A.D., before the church, first church councils started laying out which New Testament books were recognized as inspired. Why did it take 300 years? Actually, it was less than that. It was about 200 years, which isn't that long. But it took that long because there was no freedom in the Roman Empire for churches to get together without being persecuted. We forget that Christians were meeting in the catacombs because of the persecution. And it wasn't until Rome declared Christianity the state religion that they could begin to have church councils convened without the fear of being killed. And that's when they started saying these are the list. But all they were doing again was simply giving recognition to what the church had always recognized. And that's all they were doing. So in that, they were basically looking for five different things that are of significance to them. The first was, who wrote the book? Makes sense. They were looking for what was called propheticity. Old Testament, was it written by a prophet? Or New Testament, was it written by an apostle? And yet, as soon as we say that, we have some problems. Because Mark was not an apostle. Luke was not an apostle. And so we have a few exceptions there where we go, well, this was not a prophet or apostle. But again, this was, none of these, these criteria for recognizing inspiration were, were legalistically applied. It wasn't just hardcore academic way of looking at it. They were listening to the Spirit of God. And they recognized that though Mark and Luke were not themselves apostles, they were in close association with apostles. They were eyewitnesses of the things that they were talking about. And they, and they were writing under the guidance and supervision of apostles. And so those books were, were accepted and not excluded. This will become important because in the Old Testament, many of the books that people today would, in, in some church traditions would say, well, these are authoritative too. For example, the Catholics. They have a whole list of books that as Protestants we call the Apocrypha. And they've accepted those into their Bible. Most of the Apocryphal books were written after Zechariah and Malachi and before John the Baptist and Jesus. That's very significant. Because, one, none of those apocryphal books claims to be the inspired Word of God. Not a single one of them. And secondly, the testimony at the time, Haggai, Malachi, Zechariah, they all testified that the next prophet to arise would be the one who announced this is the coming of the Messiah. And so the believers, during that time we call the intertestamental period, the 400 years of silence, any book that was being written... They knew it is not the word of God because the next prophet would be John the Baptist announcing the coming of Christ. And so even the Maccabee people 
And they were one family that was rising up and rebelling against Rome. And if you heard about Masada and the fortress down there, the Maccabees were a big part of all that. They were trying to overthrow the Roman oppression of Israel. Even, and so the books of Maccabees are included in the Catholic Apocrypha, or they call, we would call the Apocrypha, they don't. The books of Maccabees are there. And even the Maccabee people say, we, were, we are looking for the man of discipleship to arise. Speaking of John the Baptist, who is yet to come. In the Qumran community, which was also functioning during that time near the, near the Dead Sea, and we found the Dead Sea scrolls were scrolls that were being preserved by the Qumran community, they said they too were waiting for this one to come. And so the testimony during that period by all of Israel was there is no prophet. That's why it's called 400 years of silence. So all of those books being written at that time were immediately excluded because there was no living prophet during those years. They looked for authority. Do these books speak with the authority of God? They look for truthfulness, veracity. Are they true in every single detail that they're saying? Because God doesn't make mistakes. So they were looking for that inerrancy within every single book. If there's errors here, it's not God speaking. They were looking for the, 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 the power of the book, the dynamic of the book. Does it carry the ability, the power to change a life? And they were looking for the, the audience that was accepting of these books. Is there immediate universal acceptance of these books? All of these things factored in to the church and church councils giving recognition of the inspired books of the, of, of the Bible. They were not determining them. They were just giving recognition of them. They had to have been written during the time, times of the prophets and during the times of the apostles. They had to have been immediately accepted. And they had to be absolutely consistent with all the other books of the Bible. One of the reasons it was necessary for this, to, this process to take place is because, as I said, people were being persecuted. And so if you were going to be persecuted, put to death for your faith. It's very important to know which books of the Bible were worth preserving and which books were not canonical and could be given up and surrendered. It was very important to know what could be read in church. I mean, it was a precious thing to gather together for church. It's not like you and me. When you say, well, I've been there two Sundays this month, you know, I've, you know that's good, and take off a couple of Sundays. People used to literally take their lives in their hands to gather together on Sunday morning. And, the, and oftentimes, the, the, the biggest part of the church service was simply the reading of God's Word. They would just read God's Word, because they didn't all have copies of it. And so when they came together, they would read lengthy um, portions of Scripture, reading sometimes hours at a time, just reading God's Word. Well, you're not going to waste that precious time reading things that are not inspired. So it was very important for the church to, to focus down on the inspired, authoritative Word of God. Now, this is always a fun part of this when I teach this at His Hill, we come to some big words because there, there are these big words that, they, that the church was using to help categorize these different books. And, and one, the, one of my favorite ones is homo legumina. 
And then there's antilegumina, and there's pseudepigrapha, and there's apocrypha. And you go, these are just great words. And, and I tell the students, I said, you could just write home and say, you know, I've been thinking about you, little brother, and you just, man, you, 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 you're just a pseudepigrapha. And, um, you, you, you know, just, and they, they won't know what you're talking about. But homolegumina and antilegumina are good categorizations. And those two categorizations encompass all 66 books of the Bible. Homolegumina is the vast majority of the books of the Bible. Of the 39 Old Testament books, all but five of them, 34 of them, fit into the category of homolegumina. And what it means is these are books that were immediately recognized as inspired. And they were never questioned. Not until we get to the 19th century and German philosophers are going crazy and they're questioning every book of the Bible. But they were never questioned until that period of skepticism arose. Then there's the antilegumina. These books were also immediately accepted as inspired. But they were later questioned. But keep in mind, they were never rejected. So the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, there was never a period of time where they were rejected. All of them were immediately accepted. A few of them, a very few, were later questioned, but they were never rejected. So some of the ones in the Old Testament that were being questioned were books like the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, even Proverbs, Esther, and Ezekiel. Those are the five. And for each of them, they just, there were problems that they were looking at. Song of Solomon, they go, man, this is pretty sexual stuff. And they're going, why would God write something about this? And so those rabbis pulled on their beards for a while, and they thought about it, and they go, well, who better to write about sex than the one who created it? And so they didn't kick it out, but it gave them pause because it's so sexually explicit. And then there was Ecclesiastes. It seemed just too skeptical, too cynical. But then they thought, well, life without Christ, life without God should be cynical. It's truth that all is vanity apart from the Lord. And they'd never kicked it out, but they, it gave them pause. Esther seemed too unspiritual because it didn't have the name of God in the book. But you can see God all through, through the book. And then in Proverbs, there's, there's two verses there that contradict each other on the surface. One says, do not answer a fool according to his way. To, accord, uh, do not answer a fool as he deserves, lest you become like him. And the next verse says, answer a fool as he deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And they go, contradiction. Script doesn't, scripture doesn't contradict itself. Well, they backed off and they realized these are Proverbs. They are not absolute statements to be applied absolutely in every circumstance. And there are times you need to answer a fool. And there are other times you need to not answer a fool. That's just life. And so that's all the books of the Bible. Homologumina, antilegumina. All of them immediately accepted. None of them ever rejected. A very small handful were at one time questioned. And then there's the pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha, false writings. So you, I may have said this at some other time in the past, but that's what, you know, when I see a chihuahua or, or, um, or a Pomeranian, I'm thinking pseudo-dog. 
Okay, it's not a real dog. It's, it's, it's half a dog. It's a fake dog. These were, were false writings, fake writings, pseudopigrapha. They were books that were rejected by everyone. They did not have initial acceptance. They were never rejected by any, accepted by anyone. Books like the Gospel of Thomas, the Epistle of Barnabas, they were never accepted. Never anybody paused over them. And then there's that difficult, because it can create hard feelings, sec- section of books called the Apocrypha. Now, when we use that term as Protestants, we mean something completely different than Catholics mean. But as Protestants, we mean there's this section of books that's in the Catholic Bible that is not in our Bibles. So this is what we need to understand the history of this. In the ancient times, there was a list of inspired books in Israel. And it was called the Palestinian Canon because Palestine is the, is the country of Israel. And there was also a list of inspired books in Alexandria, Egypt. The Jewish people went by the Palestinian canon. But there were people, Jews and otherwise, who were more influenced by Greek culture of the the city of Alexandria, and they were going by a different canon. The church, Catholic and otherwise, never went by the Alexandrian canon. They always accepted only the Palestinian canon. And the Palestinian canon has only the 39 books of the Old Testament. That's all it has. The exact Bible we have is what the Palestinian Palestinian canon was. But along came a time when the Catholic Church switched and said, we're going to accept the Alexandrian canon instead of the Palestinian. So... This is what we need to know about the apocryphal books. Number one, there is not a single clear New Testament quotation from any of those books. So the Old Testament, the New Testament quotes the entire Old Testament. In one way or another, it is all quoted. But the apocrypha is never quote, the New Testament never a single time quotes the apocrypha. Another thing is, is that many, or at least some, of the apocryphal books contain teaching that is just straight-up heretical, like praying for the dead. The apocrypha says you can pray for people who have already died. New Testament says it's too late. That once we die, there is judgment, and there is nothing to pray about. Also, some of the teaching is actually fanciful, and contrary to morality. Almost all of them were written during the 400 years of silence when there was no prophet, and there is a lot of testimony against them. For example, Josephus, the Jewish historian, explicitly excluded them. Jesus and the New Testament writers never quote from them. No church council of the first four centuries recognized them inspired. Church fathers often spoke against them. Origen, Cyril of Jerusalem, Athanasius, they all spoke against these books. Jerome rejected the Apocrypha. He first refused to translate them as part of his Latin Bible, but under pressure, he submitted to translating some of them and put them, a few of them at the, at near the end of his work. Many of the Roman Catholic scholars through the Reformation, rejected the Apocrypha. 
All the way through the time of Martin Luther, many of the Roman Catholic scholars were saying these books are not inspired. Luther and the Reformers rejected the Apocrypha. And then along came the Council of Trent, 1546. It's a long time after these books were written. Keep in mind, most of these books were written prior to Christ. So we're talking 1,500 years after they were written that the Council of Trent says they're inspired. Now, why do they do that? It's, it is highly suspicious of when they did it, the timing. Because only 29 years before the Council of Trent, Martin Luther had posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg. And then they brought heresy charges up against Martin Luther a few years later. And if you all have ever seen the movie, it's an old black and white one, there's a modern day, they're both just powerful. And Martin Luther is, cha- is standing before this council and his head is on the chopping block. They're going to kill him. And he has on the table in front of him all these books and pamphlets that he's been writing talking about the gospel and that it is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. No works, no sacraments, just believe in Jesus. It is the finished work. And so they were bringing him up on heresy charges and they said, will you recant of what you've written? And Martin Luther said, show me from Scripture where I have contradicted Scripture and I will recant. And they couldn't. Because there's not a word that he said that contradicted as far as the, as the gospel being by faith in Christ alone. They could not prove based on Scripture that it was wrong. So they had to find a way to do that, it would seem. And so it is highly suspect that the Catholics accepted the Apocrypha, books that they had never accepted until this time, as a way to speak against Martin Luther, as a way to prove them right and him wrong. Because they, and even keeping this, one of the, because they didn't accept the entire Alexandrian canon. They excluded three books from that canon. And one of those books speaks against praying for the dead. See, Catholics pray for the dead. That's what they're doing when they're, when, they're, when they're paying indulgences. When you light candles and things, you're praying that people would be released from purgatory and be allowed to enter straight into heaven. You are praying for the dead. You, get, you pay the priest money so that he would pray, so that people could have years taken off of purgatory and enter more quickly into heaven. The history here is not pretty. There were a lot of politics being involved here. And it would seem that the reason the Catholic Church waited so long to make this switch from the Palestinian canon to the Alexandrian canon was because of what was going on with Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation. Now, it's true that the testimony throughout the ages has been that the prophets were not ministering between the time of Zechariah and Malachi and Haggai, the last three, they were contemporaneous prophets, the last three prophets of the Old Testament up until the time of John the Baptist. That is clearly established. It is also clear that the New Testament church 
very, very early on, said that, the, that they treated their living apostles to be on the same level as Old Testament prophets. There were people who had the gift of prophecy while the apostles were alive. They were never given the same status as the apostles. The equivalent of Old Testament prophet in the New Testament was apostle. It wasn't prophet in Old Testament, prophet in New Testament. It is the prophets and the apostles that the foundation of our faith rests upon. And so anyone who had a gift of prophecy in the New Testament times was expected to surrender his prophecy to the authority of God's word. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks to those people who might have the gift of prophecy and say, after you've finished your prophecy, sit down and let the others pass judgment. Well, on what basis? It would seem the word of God. That they did not take the prophetic message as being in and of itself inspired, and neither should we. We're living in a time when many people claim to, to speak from God and come to us and say, God has given me a word for you. We should do exactly what Paul is saying. Take it to Scripture. What is God saying in his word? When the last apostle died, and that would be John, it is clear in the testimony of the early church fathers that they did not view that there was any, going to be any other apostle, nor would there be anything else written that would be inspired. Because they viewed the inspired writings had to come from a prophet, Old Testament, or apostle, New Testament. And so when that last apostle died, the canon was closed. It is not open today. There are some who say that there are modern-day apostles today. I have a couple friends who claim to be apostles. Well, definition means everything. And if they mean that they have, a, they have been gifted by God to be sent to another culture, because apostle literally means one who has been sent, then I can accept that definition. If they think that they have the same authority as Peter and Paul, and that what they speak is the authoritative word of God for all people at all times, then I have problems with their definition. That office of apostle is closed. And that office of prophet is closed. There may be people today, it's a subject for another time, who have the gift of prophecy, or maybe even the gift of apostleship. But that is not the same as having the office. The office is closed. And Scripture, if it, could, if, it, if, if it is the same, then Scripture could still be written today. And the boundaries have not been set. And none of us really know where to live. But it has been set. God has spoken. And He is continuing to speak through His Word. Now, as I just wrap up, and this has been pretty, again, academic. And I don't like that. I want to just come back to these five principles for recognizing um, whether something was canonical or, some, or not. And, and it strikes me that this is not something that we just should say, well, that's what they did. But it's what we should be doing. Not in testing other books, but in how we approach the book that God has given us. 
God has determined the boundaries. Just back to that most essential principle. Canonicity is determined by God. God has determined the boundaries. And God has determined that these 66 books are the boundaries for our lives. We do not have the right to minimize, exclude, or add to any of it. Period. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm convinced as a preacher that one of the reasons preachers spend so much time preaching topically, as I've been doing for the last few weeks, is because you can avoid a lot of stuff that's uncomfortable. And it's not a safe just to preach books of the Bible. Because there are topics there that nobody wants to hear about today. But these are the boundaries. And I don't have the freedom, and neither do you, to ignore anything that God has said or to add to it. Tom was telling us in Sunday school today that, you know, how science today is often following culture rather than culture following science. And apparently that there's some man out there that scientists claim is, um, is X, X instead of XY in his chromosome pattern. Female is XX, as I recall. XY is male, right? And there's this man with XX. And science says, a man with XX. Well, I don't know about science. But I know the Word of God tells me God created men and women, male and female. And if there happened to be some kind of confusion in that picture, God didn't do it. And it is by far an exception. Sin has entered into the world. And I would imagine sin somehow even impacts XX and XY chromosome patterns. But it doesn't change the fact that God has created us male and female. Period. That's not very popular today. But it's what the Word of God says. We have to stand on it. And it goes on from there. Nobody today should be treated as though they are a prophet or an apostle. And given surrender of our minds and our wills to some person who claims to have authority as an apostle or or prophet. The early church never did that. And we've lost our minds if we start doing that. This is why there's so much of spiritual abuse that can take place in churches. We need to recognize that there are authorities that God has placed in our lives. And nobody has the right to take the authority that is given only to God and His Word. We do need to surrender to the authorities that God has placed. But there will always be people who claim authority that have no right to do so. But the other extreme is to not recognize any authority but our own experience. Both are wrong. The truthfulness of Scripture. It is true in every single thing it says. So it is a valid endeavor that when we face things in Scripture that seem to be wrong or seem to be contradictory, to see how they can be reconciled. That's not wrong to do. That is a good thing to do. Because we're operating from the assumption Not assumption, but we're operating from what we know to be true, that God spoke it. Therefore, it cannot be in error or contradictory. This book truly does have the power to change lives. One of my favorite verses is from Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God unto salvation. The Koran doesn't have that power. The Book of Mormon does not have that power. The power of God to change lives is in this book, in the 66 books that make it up. And finally, the universality, the acceptance of it. There, there is wisdom in looking at the, at the flow of the church. It's like C.S. Lewis used to say about atheism. When 98% of the people on the planet say there is a God, you know there's probably a God. Do you really want to be part of the 2% that says there's not? And when the vast flow of church history has said, this is the word of God, do you really want to be the exception? Could you really be? I mean, think about the arrogance of that. And again, I see, when I see how rapidly the church is changing culturally and morally, where it is jettisoning virtually 2,000 years of uniform teaching and practice, I see arrogance. How can this possibly be right? When the church has, been, has spoken and acted with such consistency for so long on these issues, God has spoken. And this book is his word to us. I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you that these things are not just academic things. I know that there's a place, God, for us knowing these things. That's why I've spoken on it over these last few weeks. Because we're under attack. Many times we're mocked, ridiculed for having the simple faith in your word and in your person that we do. And I just thank you, God, that we are, our faith is not misplaced. We have every reason to take confidence in what you've said. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened, Lord, to stand on the truth of your word, but that we would also remain hungry, God, for your word. That you'd be stirring up in each of us the desire to know you through what you have written. And that we would be surrendered, Lord. It's one thing to speak of your word being the authority of our lives. It's another to surrender to it. And I pray we would be a submissive and yielded people who are not putting our thoughts on your word, but allowing your word to govern our thoughts. Thank you for your grace and for all that you've given us in Christ Jesus and in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.